This podcast has been underwritten by Cape Cod Healthcare because investing in the arts creates a healthier community. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast, a series of conversations with Cape Cod creatives. This project is a collaboration between the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod and Provincetown Community Television. Recorded here at the Night Owl Recording Studio at the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in Yarmouth. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast. I'm Amy Davies, the Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television. And I'm Julie Wake, the Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. Today we're here with musicians Carla Kilstead and Matthias Bossi. Hi. 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 Uh, Carla and Matthias are co-founders of Rabbit Rabbit Radio, a musical collaboration that has grown to include two other members and five albums, including their latest project, Black Inscription, a critically acclaimed multimedia song cycle about the ocean. In addition to their collaboration, Carla is a composer, songwriter, improviser, singer-violinist, and educator. She's a founding member of several bands and is the composer of several large-scale collaborative song cycles and is currently on faculty at the New England Conservatory as well as the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Meanwhile, Matthias has played drums in several musical groups and heads of video game music production company, Ridiculon. His instrumental music can be heard on most episodes of This American Life and the podcast, The Frontline Dispatch. Welcome, Carla and Matthias. Thank you. Thanks so much. We're so excited to have you. Likewise I can't believe thrilled. We, we got you here. St- yeah, I am so excited. I know. Um, so, welcome. Thank you. Welcome back to this area where you're from, Matthias. Boyhood yeah. home. It's Boyhood taking me home. back, guys. Yeah. I used to go to White Hen Pantry down the road <laughs> after church, get some Skittles. <laughs> yeah, I kid you not. I That was like, that's why I went to church, so I could get a good snack afterward. Oh, that's you know. a good incentive. Yeah. <laughs> you're just all about sugar. We're learning that this morning. Yeah, like a little eggnog just, in my coffee. Your insulin levels are very I'm not, important. I'm not going to tell your kids that you just considered Skittles a good snack. A good snack. Back in the day. Tasty. It was, it was the early tasty. 80s. Yeah, yeah. And Carla, how did you find your way to Cape Cod? Obviously through Matthias, but tell us a little bit about your background to and how you guys connected. Oh, goodness. There's a lot of questions in that question. Um, we should give the cliff notes on the, the... The story is a story unto itself, our courtship and romance and meeting. We're, right. we're okay. ready. All right. The juicy. We want the juicy. <laughs> Long ago and far away. No, I was, in a, I was living in New York City right after college. Mm-hmm. I was in a band called Skeleton Key. I was in a band called Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum in Oakland, California. We had the same booking agent that booked us together on a national tour. I left New York and in... made my way out to California. This okay. was December of 2002. Met these guys on December 11th or 12th, I can't remember what it was, at the bottom of the hill, which is a great club in San Francisco. Carla came in pushing a plastic Tupperware box of merch across the floor in a black sweater with little flowers on it. I wouldn't say that the sparks flew at that point, but <laughs> she was the one gal in a sea of like nine or ten dudes. Okay, so I had no competition is The odds were saying. good. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah, but she also was like, she's tough. She was like hanging with the guys. And, and if you knew this band that she was with, it was a bunch of miscreants and very opinionated paternalistic hippies. Mm. Whoa. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> paternalistic. We're going to 
have to talk about that later. Anyway, I we'll talk okay. about that off I air. What that, what, what, You're causing what that a fight. <laughs> anyway, so, so, okay, we started this tour off together. We completely Wait. hit it off. Vehicles, important. Just oh, set yeah. the scene. Carla's band traveled in this decrepit, old, white city bus that had been outfitted with a kitchen and bunks, and it was like this kind of glorious, nice way to travel. Mm. Good food. Uh, we were in this rusty old white plumbing van that Wait, we actually. Good food, meaning that we cooked the food, not that we yeah. had a cook or anything. Yeah. This was a very DIY operation. And we, you know, were traveling in our very punk rock like old plumbing van from Queens, basically. Oh my gosh. Four of us. Yeah. We would hang out after the shows, wish that we could be hanging out more. It was around Christmas time. Mm. We were from New York. We had to keep working. All these California people went to their various families in Los Angeles or up in Humboldt County or in the Bay Area. And we were going to meet up again a couple days later in, in Texas, Austin, Texas. Meanwhile, we were going to play at the Knitting Factory in Los Angeles and then in El Paso, Texas on the 26th. And we were going to meet up on September, December 27th. Which is our anniversary, oh. funnily enough. December so, wait, hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna interject here. <laughs> okay. My family, my sister lived lives in Los Angeles, and did then as well. Um, and my family celebrates Christmas on Christmas Eve, and then of course, like you do, we went on we we go to the movies on Christmas Day. <laughs> so sitting in a movie theater um, in Los Angeles, about to turn my phone off my, my phone off to, to be a good audience member I get a message from um, his band leader Eric Sanko or I, I think I sent him a message saying happy Christmas awesome he says great have a good we'll, we'll see you in a couple days and turn off my phone I turn it back on two hours later okay to Meanwhile, another text message rewinding we spent Christmas in Laurel Canyon in the basement of Buzz Osborne from the Melvins pretty famous band with Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys. Oh my God. It was a really odd night watching The Thing, which is a John Carpenter film, surrounded <laughs> by this like crazy collection of vintage toys and World War II memorabilia. That was my Christmas. It was a really <laughs> weird night. We got up that next, on Christmas morning, uh, <clears throat> got going. We were heading out uh, east on I 10 through the desert. Palm yeah. Springs, mm. Scirocco Summit, 29 Palms. We stopped at Bob's Big Boy. We were tired. We had uh, we were going to make our way to El Paso over a day or so, and we were in our rusty plumbing van. Craig, the guitarist, was driving. I was in the front seat. Eric and Tim were in the back without their seatbelts, and Craig was like, hey, man, I'm pretty tired. I think I'm gonna, there's a rest area coming up here in like 15 minutes. Why don't you take a nap, and then you can take over driving. I was 23 years old. Rolled up my sweatshirt into a little ball, there was no headrest on the seat. There was like a really low back kind of like vinyl interior. And I completely fell asleep and then was like jolted awake by Craig having fallen asleep at the wheel and us fishtailing down the highway at 65 miles an hour. And we dove off in between east and west lanes of the highway into a, a culvert of rocks at about 65 miles an hour and rolled, rolled and rolled and rolled end over end. Uh, and I, I was like, okay, this is how my life ends. I'm 23 years old. Everything is happening in mm -hmm. slow motion. It was very quiet. Mm. And we landed on the roof of the van. All the windows had, like, blown out, and the mm. engine was still running. I remember hitting my seatbelt and, boom, like, falling on the roof and then, like, launching off across the desert. I was totally in shock, convinced yeah. that I was paralyzed, watching, like, we had, like, 
all our instruments had blown out of the van over a 400-yard swath of the desert, guitars and drums, video cameras and suitcases, and, and I got tackled by this motorist who wrapped me in a heat blanket, like a marathon, like one of those silver heat blankets. Yeah. They called the ambulance. We went to the Bob Hope Memorial Hospital on Christmas. All the nurses were feeling so bad for us, and they put us up in the hospital, in this hotel for the night. And then we called Carla, and we're like, um. Right, so that happened while I was in the movie. So <laughs> Do you I get out movie? of the movie. Do you know I movie? don't remember what it was. I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't remember what it was, but um, got out of the movie, turned on my phone. Merry Christmas. We are in the hospital. I should say so, that Eric and Tim, without their seatbelts, refused medical attention. Somehow they were fine. Craig wow. had like split his head completely wide open. I broke some ribs and smashed my head. I had this weird red eye for like eight months, like a robot eye. We called Carla and those guys, we're in the desert. What do we do? And they offered, they came and picked us up. And then. When we finished the whole tour in our bus. They drove us back to the East in Coast. Our, what did you call it? <laughs> Paternalistic hippies. Paternalistic hippie bus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, then, then it was like Nurse Carla, tending oh. to the wounds of the band, dressing, you know, bandages, and the staple singers were on. There was these nice late night drives. We may have drank an entire bottle of absinthe. We might have done that. We might have done that. And we like <laughs> so romantic. We clearly, we clearly hit it off at that yeah. point. Yeah. But then. I don't know. She lived in California. I lived mm. in New York. Mm. There was there was romance, but it was like she was like, "Who's this young guy? You know, mm. eight years younger Who's than this me." Skinny, <gasps> skinny drummer dude. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, fast forwarding. <laughs> Essentially, my band, uh, the drummer in my band, left the band at the end of the next tour to go back to school, and we had this crazy situation of having a great band and needing a drummer, and so we held auditions, and he's one of the guys we auditioned. Nepotism. Like, ne I don't know. I, I mean, I knew I, I knew the songs. I played them really well. But there's like the girl is inviting her boyfriend into the band, and you know, that could go. Really it could bad. have gone either way, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, and then, and then of course, I joined the make band. Make the dangerous choice. Is and what I had say. A, make, have lead a good life. Make the dangerous yeah. choice. We oh, made the I dangerous like choice. Of course, I had really <laughs> bad PTSD, and so I immediately got on their bus oh, and God. would wake up screaming every night, kicking through my bunk. And yeah, like, you and Olivia both. I, that was, I was there like was haunted night terrors by on that the bus. accident for years. For or? years, yeah, yeah. yeah. I never did well on tour again. Basically, right. with the traveling and the buses and the tight spaces. And the and sleeping the, while moving. And the, sleeping while right. someone else was responsible for my life. Right, out of control. Uh, yeah, right? yeah. so I, I just kind of never got over that. But I joined her band. I left New York, which I was not happy in, moved to California. Uh, Tacos, palm trees, reasonable rent at that point in the, uh, in the Bay Area. In our, that like, was a long time ago. That was a long mm -hmm. time ago. <laughs> anyway, that's how we got together. We stayed out there until the band simultaneously all had babies. Literally, it was like Pretty a much. baby within a, within explosion. Within a couple years. Within a couple of years, everyone had babies. And we tried to, we actually really did try to bring the babies on tour on that bus. At that point, we had a, a new bus. We had a different, mm -hmm. different bus, slightly uh, more private accommodations, slightly less public group sleeping situation yeah. tell us more about the genre of music it's it, for me it's it's uh it's of that challenging band or to of us in general i mean 
We've made some weird music. It's really fascinating. And whenever I see the two of you play separately or together, it's powerful. It's sometimes it's weird and unusual and unexpected. And I just love the combination. And I'd love for you to talk about your classically trained background as a violinist, you as a drummer. It's just, it's really like magic when you guys are together. So tell us a little bit about the genre and and how you found yourself creating this interesting product Uh, this is a this is always a complicated um Mm. a complicated topic for me i have to say because i it's an inside outside issue because when you're talking about genres you're talking about how how do you see something from the outside i mean how do where do i what category do i put it in i put it Mm. in this category it's most like this it's like sort it's sorting game Right, it's like a yeah. cultural sorting game. This fits over here and maybe a little bit with this thing. For me, as a creative musician, I honestly, I try, I try to see things more from the from the inside. Like let the logic of the thing I'm working on and the logic of the material and the music itself def- say what it wants to be, instead of wrestling it into a mold. And so I know that gets complicated in terms of how to talk about things, but I feel like it more models how I experience things internally and that the inside as, out. yeah kind of that that yeah. for me music making is about synthesis it's about internalizing d- different things that I like different things I'm drawn to different things that just kind of come from the way I'm wired naturally mm-hmm. and synthesize them and I'm not that concerned about how they come out or what they sound like or whether they sound like anything else or whether they you know whether they fit in this mold or that mold so that question is it's like a marketing mm. question right and right yeah, it is a marketing question is. like where do you fit and like now we don't have um tower records anymore but that used to be like the thing like where do you put this <laughs> like, where right. do you put it in the this aisle or the that aisle and, and I think I've my whole life kind of been drawn towards musicians who feel similarly yeah. who feel like yeah I love all kinds of music and I can name like 20 different genres of music that I love and when it comes to making music I don't I don't want to build the walls first and then fill that form I want to have the conversation and let the conversation, the the creative conversation, make its own form. So that's that's why it's a little hard for me. I would say that the music we tend to make together definitely has one foot in rock um, kind of uh, language, and both in, in terms of the instruments we use and um, the song form that we play with and 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 utilize. I obviously play violin, and as a I came up as a studying classical violin and was always really drawn to the more post-war contemporary like mm-hmm. 1930 and on composers like Bela Bartok string quartets might be like the thing that defined my musical life the most if I had to pick one thing mm-hmm. that changed I could pick 10 things that changed how I thought about music and what it could do but the experience of learning Bartok's fourth string quartet might have been the thing that changed mm. that summer when I was 15 years old or whatever mm. that changed the, the idea of how I thought about working in small groups of musicians how I thought about just the the range of emotion you can g- capture how I thought about um, rehearsal processes and all like the whole both the, the music and the process of, of learning it and working with people in a room was one of the defining things about like what I love about music, whether it's rock or classical or anything. So there's a really circuitous answer. <laughs>
if people, I mean, that's the problem with the genre titles is yeah. that it is that they tend, and I'm like now at this point in my life, I'm starting to see language differently. I'm starting mm-hmm. to see like when you have a binary mm-hmm. or a thing that seems really solid and isolating, like rock, classical, you know, whatever these things right. we look at as, as opposites, like us, them, black, white, male, female, whatever it is, whatever the yeah. binary is. It, it's more useful to see those things as the outside posts on a spectrum. And most of the interest, interesting conversations and work in the world is in between those posts. And they're just useful as posts much more than they are useful as camps, right? So anyone who says, I don't like classical music because it doesn't rock, well, it's just because they've never listened to Bartok's Four String Quartet, for example. Mm-hmm. And anyone who says that classical music doesn't groove the fact that we can name these things and those names feel so solid, it's like I'm, I feel like I'm really skeptical in a healthy way of language in a way that, that's much more interesting. <laughs> they mm. make, makes conversation more interesting. Mm. The music that we make together. Bring it back home with that. Explores. <laughs> well, it explores the tension in that conversation. Carla uh, is at heart much more of an experimentalist. And me as a drummer and rhythm section player, I tend to seek foundations and simple ideas. And our music is, yeah, it often explores that tension. Where, Interesting. Where, where, where it's often maybe a little dissonant, uh, floating on the top, and I have made a very square thing that the song is existing over the top of, like 4-4, four, four, like a rock beat. You know, I'm a drummer. I'm yeah. a caveman. So, <laughs> and... I came out of of rock music. It was the music that meant the most to me as a kid, mm-hmm. like hair bands, glam rock, things mm-hmm. like that. It's like it's just what I loved. I went to jazz college. I went to NEC and broadened my technical horizons and learned how to play a little more free on the drum set. But then I just kind of got a little bummed out on the uh, one dimensional cultural aspect of of that music, and people were unwilling to see beyond it. And and so I went back to playing rock music with more freedom as a drummer but still when we first of all our our band our duo grew out of the fact that we were always in bands that had a million people in them that were super maximalist and very loud and everything flying at you all at once and we wanted something that was of course inspired by that and couldn't couldn't help but grow out of that but only had the two of us it could travel and it, it also reflected where we were in our life we moved away from our from our community and we were new parents and we moved to a place where we didn't know any musicians and so it really was just the two of us Mm. so it was partly like how do we survive how do we survive right (laughs) so Carla really probably opened up a whole new world for you 100% and Matthias his background and his love for rock how did that impact the way you thought well I think like Matthias is instinct as a musician totally anchor my I mean I listened to a lot of stuff that I did before I met Matthias and in I have to say like it not a lot of it does not stand the test of time <laughs> right, right um, yeah. and so there's a way that I think that I have like a melodically expansive kind of way of thinking and he's got that maybe ex- takes what he does and adds dimension to it and yeah. he takes what where what I do and and add gravity and anchoring to it in a way. And in a way, Black Inscription is like the most thorough realization of those two things. Just for your listeners, when I'm talking about like Bartok String Quartets, just just so you understand, I feel like when we have done our job well, Mm -hmm. 
we've made musical decisions that don't alienate you, even if they might be new to you, even if it's so mm. when we've done our job well, you don't care what kind of music we're playing, but you're in it anyway. Mm. So and, you know, some we do it better and less less well on different different songs and different days but that's like that's our goal well i have to tell you that when i listened to black inscription i was fully immersed Mm. in that world Mm -hmm. and it was just such an emotional response to it going in and not and having heard some clips online but not it was more live performances and very short clips Mm -hmm. and it really was just like an emotional experience i was driving Mm -hmm. and so i was kind of Perfect time night. to listen to it. That's driving my at night, favorite, and it was like time. so. I, you know, it, it kept me concentrating on driving in a way, mm-hmm. but it was it was it was an experience. Yeah, I think like a, for me, like the, a mark of a successful moment in our music is if you are driving and totally immersed in it and totally in it, and and you don't ask yourself that the the question, "What kind of music is this?" doesn't come till you're done, till you turn off the stereo, and then he's like, "Oh wait." What was that? Mm. But if you're like thinking about it, well, what kind of music is this? Then, then we haven't mm. pulled you in enough, right? Mm-hmm. And, our, and really mm. what we're trying to do, I always talk to my students and my composition students or my songwriting students, like your canvas is the listener and the nervous system of the listener. Your canvas is not some, you know, that, that's, the canvas is not even yourself. Like you're, you're really, what you're painting on and what you're working to affect is the nervous system of your listener. And that, like, it doesn't matter what tools you use to do that, but that has to be your goal, to, like, ch- shift the the molecules of the person listening in some physical and palpable and, like, compelling way. We started this band when we moved here. We were new parents. We left the Bay Area for many reasons. We felt far away from family. We felt like we needed a shift in life, and or otherwise we may have just ended up in the touring vortex forever. We were super busy mm-hmm. and super poor. <laughs> no, I mean it. Yeah. It was like we yeah. could have easily, I mean, it was mm-hmm. a very powerful band and there were hundreds of people coming out to our concerts and we were gone all year. It mm-hmm. just never it never allowed us a, a, a life where we mm-hmm. could, you know, raise a family. So we moved back here. My parents were here. My dad was recently diagnosed with Parkinson's, and it just felt like it was like, okay, this is a moment here. First of all, my mom is like an unbelievable grandma, and to oh, this day and is, is she's mm, just solid. Yeah, she is so she is selfless. She just We're talking wants, about Maggie Bossy, the one yes, and only Maggie. Bossy. The one and only Maggie Bossy. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to always do that every time. I say oh, I know. <laughs> she's legendary. She is. Anyway, we so we got here and we definitely felt unmoored and had experimented with starting this band prior to leaving California. Didn't didn't hadn't found our footing yet. We weren't writing songs, we were creating little events, like little improvised events or like <laughs> exercises that we would play in front of people. We would play some stuff from Carla's old band catalog and we would you know, it was just sort of a little we were haphazard. Finding, we we're finding our dance mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until we washed up here that we really started. We were like, okay, how do we stay in touch with the people who still want to hear from us? And we started this subscription series called Rabbit Rabbit Radio, where we would release a song a month with an accompanying video and some kind of blog writing and photographs and whatever. It kept us busy. Mm. It kept us writing all the time. It was a 
full-time job. And we built up this subscriber base and would do a song a month. And by the end of the year, we would have 12 songs, which basically would equal an album. That's mm-hmm. how we've made five records in the time that we've been here. We're about to have a sixth coming up here in the next month, is that we we just sort of held to this formula. We release a song on the first of every month. I don't know if any of you say Rabbit Rabbit on the first of the month. But oh, that's right. what our name yeah, comes rabbit, from. Rabbit. Yeah. Is cause so you're supposed to say rabbit rabbit before your feet hit the ground and before you say anything else on the first of the month. I did it this month, by the way. I did not. If anyone in your household <laughs> or your general community we play a very yeah. easy game of it. You can kind of say rabbit rabbit and have it count for your whole community if you want. So I got everyone oh. this month. Oh, oh thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. You're covered. Um, and it's just good luck and well wishing. So yeah. we release our songs on the first of every month, hence the name Rabbit Rabbit Radio. Mm-hmm. Emma shared an article, a New York Times article, about you guys were both interviewed in that. Oh, right. And kind of your motivation for doing that. And I, what stuck with me was that I think, Carla, you were quoted as saying, you know, we were tired of complaining all the time that we weren't being heard. And I don't know if those are your exact words, but essentially it was like, so we decided to come up with a solution to get our work out. Yeah, it's so easy just to mourn how things used to be mm. and to sit there and like look at it wistfully in the rearview mirror and then like 10 years goes by and you're still looking at like how things used to be. And in the recording mm. industry with record labels, it's just different now. And you can sit there and mourn it or you can be like, wait a minute, there's all kinds of things that are at our disposal and at our fingertips now. Like mm-hmm. we can actually really foster a really ongoing and deep and continuous relationship with the people who care about our music. Mm-hmm. And we can be in charge of it and... And spend and make it make it work for our budget and for our time, and it's actually been, it's yeah, been really great. We, Carla especially, and me to some degree, and we're lucky enough that when we started playing in bands, there was still such a thing as a record deal or selling records or whatever. I mean, we put our time in with other bands and other projects. Carla as a session musician, m- me making records with singer songwriters, this and that. I I think it would have been really hard to do what we did if we were just like let's let's reach out into the ether to anyone who's <laughs> listening you know we we put in some time with yeah. showing up in various cities across the world right. in America with various people in order to That's really true. Maybe I've... have a base for people to be interested. Like whatever right. happened to those guys? We we had designs on this becoming a touring band, but it's been challenging. We will occasionally tour Europe. It's been really hard for us to play shows and, and get things going, just with where we are in our parenting life right now with our two oh, young I kids. Oh, I bet. I bet. But the, the, the silver lining of that yeah. is that it's... Damn kids. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a problem of both of us being in the band. Right. Sure. Like, usually, right. like yeah. a, you know, someone, there's, if, if there's a musician in the family, they, they go off on tour and whoever's... Right. Who else is left to holds down the fort? But it's it's both of us. So, so like, you don't, uh, <laughs> Carly, you're not caring. Enter Maggie Bossy. <laughs> well, the silver lining of that is that we, it's it's it hasn't forced. It's opened doors to other things. Like Carla yeah. has two killer teaching jobs. Mm. I have started my video game production company yeah, with tell, John Evans. Will you and, tell us a little bit about that too? That's really interesting. yeah. I mean, John was our neighbor in Oakland. He grew up here. You're he went kidding. he went to DY. He's ten years older than me. So he's from Yarmouth. I'm from Dennis. He probably had my dad in school at DY. Oh, my gosh. And he was someone who was tangentially related to our weird rock scene out there. There were friends we had in common that were always playing with John, but we never quite, like, met Mm -hmm. on stage. 
right before we left town, we started hanging out a little more. I remember seeing him over at Scott Amendola's house and being like, that guy's from Cape Cod? So weird. He looks like Richard <laughs> Gere. He's like, you know, he's like the silver fox. You yeah, know? he does. Yeah, he's kind of, he's like, you're, you're he really handsome. quite a silver then. Right. Anyway. He's a more silver now. He was our neighbor. <laughs> he's more like Smokey. Yeah. Yeah. Smokey fox. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Hi, John. Yeah. John, Smokey fox. Anyway, so we started talking. First of all, we moved back. And yeah. the moment we moved back, he started calling me like every day. I remember fielding these calls from him. Because I think John and his wife, Allison, tried to move back to the East Coast in like 2007, and it didn't pan out. They ended up buying a little cottage here on the Cape that they would start visiting in the in the summers, and we started talking and scheming. At that point, we were trying to come up with some kind of, something that was just going to be soul-crushing and not so fun, like mm. a commercial music licensing company that would do commercials and mm -hmm. things like that. And But it got us talking. He was really, at that point, really considering wanting to move back. But he had a thriving recording studio. His wife had an unbelievably successful business. They had a beautiful home. And all three of those things were going to have to go within about an eight-month period for this thing to work out, for them to move back. Oh, so we moved okay. back in the summer of 2010. Okay. John eventually did move back exactly a year later in 2011. Sold his recording studio. Allison sold her business. And... They sold their house. It all just, they did it. And wow. it's all because I lied to him, I think. And I'm sorry, John. I was like, yeah, man, it's- It's thriving. It's thriving here. <laughs> like, you are just going to be stepping onto the moving walkway here. <laughs> and then he showed up. <laughs> and I basically- What you didn't said, tell him was that the moving walkway just needed him to like yeah, open yeah. it up and you get his to tool belt together. out and tinker yeah. with it and make it go. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah. he moved. Yeah. And then, but it, it just so happened that that fall- the grace of God or Mother Nature or whatever, we had this huge project fall in our lap. The, our first nice. ever video game project, which spawned, which which stemmed from, there used to be this guy who came out to our Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum shows who was- When he uh, was underage, I think even, maybe. Yeah, yeah, no, he, maybe Ed not. McMillan, bless him. He was like a struggling game designer, successful on the level that we were. Like, people knew who he was, but he just wasn't making money. Yeah. And he was the dog catcher in Santa Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> then one year, he made this game that the entire world wanted in 2010. What's that? It was called Super Meat Boy. And then after that, like every every game that, I mean, I've done the music for every, every single one of his games. It started with me doing voices for, for his games. That was the narrator for one of his projects. And then John arrived to town and we, this big five-year-long project, he just dumped it in our lap. And that was the thing that led to other companies mm -hmm. and then... I started working for Jay Allison, founder him. of WCAI, yeah. and we moved to Woods Hole. And that that kind of ah. opened up the public radio side. So John and I uh, do our Ridiculon thing, and then we have this other thing called Stellwagen Symphonette, which is our other, like, we tend to, like, brand ourselves into... Oblivion. Oblivion. And never put our, <laughs> n never put our names on anything. I kind of like it. Keeps us busy. Keeps well, us We can walk covert. the street that way. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So now I work for GBH in Boston. I work for This American Life, The Moth Radio Hour, and now also scoring a new podcast. I can't name her and him and the title yet, but it'll be out this Ooh, winter. I hang out with John, and he's he's produced all our records. He's an incredible wow. engineer and a great musician. Yeah. And tends to 
have great ideas. He's a fabulous vocal coach. He's uh, he's just great with arranging. So the tension that inherently exists in our music between my tendency to want to put things in a box and Carla's uh, long form harmonic approach. <laughs> yes, Creative so diplomatic. I could, I yeah. felt you reaching for diplomacy there. <laughs> <laughs> He he's a he's a really great middle ground. Yeah. And he's and and things just sound incredible. So our records sound good because of John. And now my oldest pal in the world, Jeremy Flower, who wrote Black Inscription with us, like my longest standing musical collaborator pal from college, who has always made music with me in one way or another, is now on board. And mm. He's a big reason why Black Inscription sounds the way it does. Well, let's talk a little bit yeah. more. I feel like we're talking around Black Inscription. Oh, yeah. I haven't even really. Yeah. So let's yeah. let's talk yeah. about it. It's so let's go what, there. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> so tell us the the concept. So essentially, the live version of Black Inscription it, it exists in in as an album, and it exists as a live show, and they're they're similar, but the the album has. Five musicians on it, four with a guest, uh, with a guest in, in one, and then the live album. In order to recreate those sounds, uh, the live um, band is, is seven people, and it follows the, the main character of the story is a diver who is inspired by the late Natalia Molchanova, who is a Russian freediver, who, at the time of her disappearance, which was just right around the time when we started working on this project. She held the record, every record there was for freediving, for for depth. Freediving is this uh, this very intense sport where you dive as deep as you can into the ocean without any apparatus, without anything, without oxygen tanks, without anything except yourself. And there's different ways of doing it. Often there's a line that's anchored and and you're kind of tethered to the line and you have to go down and grab a, a, a little clip on the bottom of it and attach it to yourself and go back up. It's very dangerous because these the, these dives are, I think her record at that point was 100 meters, 101 meters, mm. um, which if you can imagine the extent to which you would feel like your head was going to implode. 300 um, plus feet. Yeah, yeah, mm. it's it's pretty crazy, and and it's dangerous. Like you, mm. your body goes through all kinds of of crazy pressure uh, issues, and and to hold the record, you actually have to go go to the depth and come back up and not pass out when you get to the surface. The piece is really inspired by two really wonderful women, and I I like to point out that the reason that they that they spawned this piece was not because they were good at what they did, although they truly were, but because they were good at expressing what that are talking about and conveying what was important about what they did. And that is Natalia Molchanova, who wrote these beautiful poems about what freediving meant to her. Mm. She wrote these very uh, short but really powerful little poems about the spiritual aspect of diving into the water and what it meant to her and what it meant for her to both feel like she had this place on the earth where she could f- both find herself and lose herself all at the same time. And then it made her kind of feel something deeper than the general surface level of mm. of daily life and kind of connected her in a really visceral way to the natural world. And, and I found her poems translated from uh, the Russian on her website. And that was actually really the first time when I knew that this was this is who we were going to follow when we started writing this piece. The other person is Rachel Carson, 
who really is the founder, uh, effectively the founder of the um, environmental movement, not just because she was a great scientist, but because she really was Mm -hmm. and a great observer of the natural world. But she was a beautiful writer. Mm. I mean, her books didn't just talk to scientists. They wasn't just lingo. They weren't dry at all. They were incredibly full of really nuanced and detailed information about what she was seeing um, in the natural world, but they, just the language themselves is ju- itself is just gorgeous. And so the title, Black Inscription, is actually from a passage in, in one of her books, The Edge of the Sea, where she talks about the fact that there's everywhere, well, she, she first talks about how volatile that place is, where, where ocean meets land is the most, it's violent. It's like the most complicated mm. and volatile place on earth. And it's the the creatures and and plants that live there have to be able to live both with like beating sunshine and weather and extremes of temperature as land based things and then and then also the volatility and dangers of the water and they have to constantly be be able to shift back and forth and that no two days are ever the same on any shoreline. But there is one thing that's consistent, and it's this little line of microplants that exists everywhere where where ocean continually touches rock. And there is this line that goes basically around the earth. And she called it the Black Inscription. And to me, that title was so profound because it was an, it felt like an invitation. It felt like it gave, when you read the word inscription, it feels like obviously your next job is to decipher it. And so I liked that. We kind of we liked that that aspect of it. So yeah, those two women really were the the inspiration for the for the whole piece. There's also a, a practical inspiration in that our bass player in the band, uh, George Bon Weiss, is a professor of environmental engineering at USC, mm. and he got a grant from the humanities department there called Visions and Voices. And he came to us and said, "Hey, he was a guy who would tour with us on the West Coast when we were out there," and he said. There's this grant we should apply for it. Let's write a song. Let's make some music that where science uh, is the inspiration. Mm. It was all very vague, and we put together some hot proposal. He got us some money. We went out and did the original version of this without any staging and lighting in Los Angeles in 2017. Yeah. It was just after my dad died. Yeah, 2017. And it was great. It was a different name at that point. It just it it, it didn't the, the the narrative arc wasn't there, but the songs were essentially there. And we already knew at that point we had written us we we wrote a song a month as we do, mm-hmm. right? And we wrote a song a month. And in that over the course of that month, the first two songs I actually use Natalia Mochanova's poetry. Mm-hmm. So we kind of begin with her with her voice and begin with her diving into the ocean. And then the question was, okay, where do we go from here? Right? So now the ocean obviously is a laughably large topic to take on. <laughs> and so it was once we had her as our our entry point, then we could start drawing a line that obviously wasn't going to touch on everything because how could it possibly? Even science hasn't even explored more than 5% of the ocean. So what we began to do is just to research and ask, and we, luckily we live in this town, Woods Hole, where most uh, half of our friends are ocean scientists or involved in some really deep way with a study of or, you know, life based on um, around the ocean. 
So we had a lot of opportunities to ask people, like, what are you working on? What are you studying? What are you interested in? What's going on? Can I peek over your shoulder in the lab? Can I, like, what are some things I might think about? And and every month I would kind of pick um, with the help of Taylor Heil and Timothy Shank specifically, who are two biologists on the at the um, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, mm. and they were friends of ours. Taylor has kids that are our kids' ages, and so we were we were seeing them on a fairly ca- regular and casual way. But it allowed us, in the craziness of our kind of parenting and creative lives, to just keep those conversations moving. And so every month, we I took on a different topic and spent the month researching and trying to learn about that topic and then build it into the story through the eyes of this diver. I should say, I haven't said yet, that Natalia Molchanova actually did disappear on a dive and she was never found. They No evidence of her ever showed up. There's a lot of reasons why that could have happened. The, the ocean is full of surprises and secrets that, that aren't too far below the surface. So changes in temperature, currents that, that you can't detect from, from above. And she was not on a monitor dive. She, she was just doing it. If she were on a monitor dive, she never would have disappeared. right? But uh, she was just doing a casual dive during a break. of on a teaching. She was teaching someone how to dive off the coast of Spain. And she said, I'll be right back. I'm just going to go 30 meters, which t- would explode my head. But for her, it was like a walk in the park. So because it was not an actually official dive, it was just her, and she disappeared. And because uh, she had actually spoken specifically about how what, what kind of a sense of belonging she had in the ocean, even her son, who who is actually a free diver as well, after her death, um, he was quoted as saying something like, you know, now she's... Now she finally can actually join the ocean. Now she can. Now she's where she wanted to be. So we kind of took her. We take the the idea of of her as a diver and her synchronicity and symbiosis with the ocean. We just uh, imagine that she was actually able to keep on going. Over the course of the songs, she becomes. She learns more and more about the ocean in a deeper way and becomes more and more a part of it. So we kind of deal with her death in a more philosophical way. By the end of the of the song cycle, she has fully become a part of the ocean, and she's speaking through the she and the ocean's voice are kind of the same, one and the same. So that's the that's the trajectory of the of the piece. <laughs> but all in a very listenable yeah yeah way yeah yeah that, it, that's really our goal. We're not trying to overwhelm anyone really. We're I mean that's actually the, the fun of being a songwriter. You really like the challenge is to not to spew as we're doing now and like say a million things and give you everyone all the background, but to be able to take melody and harmony and form and a handful of words and wrap them all around together and make something that feels strong and compelling and interesting. And the story did have things that we weren't able to convey to really make it feel more linear. We needed help in some of the storytelling aspects. We needed, like, I didn't want to saddle the songwriting process with having to be, like, fully narrative. So we brought on Mark DiChiazza, who is a really wonderful director and someone who has a lot of experience in many, many different kinds of theatrical environments. He started off as a dancer and a choreographer and then, you know, has done a lot of video work, has done a lot of theater directing and a lot of environmental design for different multimedia pieces in New York. He's just a... He really understands the way that different mediums can help each other and not compete with each other. And so we brought him in pretty early on. Like he came to our Los Angeles show to to because he already knew that we had invited him in to help 
make this story have more dimension than just the songs. Mm. And so he pulled together a really wonderful team of designers, a lighting designer, uh, someone to kind of help think about the clothing that we would be wearing, the costumes, and, and we brought a sound designer in as well. So this team, Mary Ellen Stebbins is the lighting designer, Quentin Chiapetta was our 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 environmental sound designer and Mark did kind of video design and physical environmental design mm -hmm. just to hold, to contain the atmosphere mm -hmm. and to help pull this, pull the story along and give context where the lyrics maybe couldn't or didn't. So the idea is that the, when the audience comes in, they're already feeling like they're in this environment. And we also worked with a wonderful writer named Hannah Silva, who's a vocalist and playwright and a poet who lives in London. She had already done a piece for the BBC radio about Natalia Molchanova. Who knew? We did not know until after we were finished writing our songs. And actually a friend of ours, a radio producer in Woods Hole, um, Sam Brown, came up to us after we did a little house concert version of the songs. And she said, you know... You know, there's our, like there's a great 20-minute radio piece on BBC about your diver that imagines her final dive from her perspective. And Fiona Shaw d is the voice of Natalia Molchanova. And I was like, gong, really? <laughs> really? So kind of wonderful to think that across the ocean, we, Hannah Silva, had been working with the BBC producer at the same, the very same time we had been working on these songs, been thinking about that same moment of that same diver. And so, and that the ocean that she disappeared in is actually the ocean that separated the two, <laughs> the two processes. So I reached out to her and said, Can. We, we need to connect. And so we had a, like an hour and a half long Skype meeting. She, in came, which, she came out to a show of ours in London. She did. She yeah. came out to a show. She agreed to um, rewrite and push and pull and help us adapt her script to help us give our main character a voice. And so that's the voice you hear both on the album and in the live show. Is It's actually our neighbor from... <laughs> it's our neighbor who is a wonderful Russian actress who voices Hannah's words. So we had lots of uh, extra musical help in kind of pulling the story together to, to make it a, a live theatrical kind of cohesive event. In the Cape recently, we were lucky enough that you were able to perform that at the Kutuit Center for the Arts. I don't know how that was August? September. 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 And so it was really exciting to hear that that was actually here. Are there plans to do it again? I am working so hard to seed those plans. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of venues that we that yeah. were that were wh whose doors we're knocking on. It definitely needs to happen in a place that is set up not just for music but for theater because it really does mm -hmm. utilize a full the the full force of a mm -hmm. of a space that's set up with the lighting grid and projectors and. Even though it really is a rock band on stage with some, with some bells, some significant bells and whistles, it needs those bells and whistles. When I've listened to it, it is interesting. Like I'm, I'm not thinking about the genre, mm -hmm. you know. So it, it does exactly that. Did mm -hmm. you feel that way, mm -hmm. Amy, when you listened to it? Like it was it, completely immersive. It, yeah, it's an experience, it really like you said. In the ocean, for me, there, there, there are like two places where I feel free: riding a bike, and swimming. And so just that emotional connection for me to the freedom, I obviously mm -hmm. have never, I shouldn't say obviously, maybe I have, <laughs> uh, I've never done a free dive, but you know, just the, the ocean is yeah. a very freeing place for mm -hmm. me. 
And so, like I said, I think that kind of hit an emotional uh, note for me. It's interesting. We, we ask a lot of the listener, but also sort of hypnotize them with our mm. six or seven minute spoken word guided meditation to start the record. Mm. It's, uh, you're like, what is going on here? What is it? And then all of a sudden you're, you're like, you're mm. hypnotized and then you just dive in mm-hmm. and you merge an hour later. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, uh, that, that passage, so the record starts with, as Matthias said, it starts with the, the first piece of text from Hannah Silva's piece called Jump Blue. And with Tatiana Gessen is the actress who, who is speaking it. She's got a lovely, really interesting voice. And she basically, it's, it's the diver talking about what it takes to prepare herself to dive mm. and to prepare herself to, to kind of leave the surface and, and go where she's going. And mm. so for us as perform- performers, we come out on stage and it prepares us to perform. Mm. And it also prepares, it introduces the audience to the main character and it prepares the audience to listen. So it's this kind of, I don't even think we knew how, how helpful that that moment was going to be because it really does set the tone and the stage and like it mm. puts you in this alternate it helps the band too honestly that mm. was like we, we we arrive in the dark and we settle into our drum throne or plug in our guitar and just stand or whatever and then sink down mm. really it uh it was it's the most immensely helpful part otherwise mm. you're just like people clap the lights go up and you start, and right. it's always hard to do that. The first song in any in any mm, set always stinks. That. I thought about that either. So we built in this this reason to become someone else and and shift our brains. More theatrical than yeah. a concert, right? So it's that process of pulling us in mm-hmm. and preparing us, educating us to just sit still. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's yeah. doing the same for us. Yeah. Too. There are some nights where we needed it. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah, absolutely. We were like kindergartners, like like backstage. Yeah, the boys literally. get a little rowdy back Easy there. Easy on yeah. the Skittles there. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Yeah, I mean, literally up until the point where they like call us to the stage, there's a lot of banter and joking yeah. around. and But that is just like, stop it. Right. It's work time. You know, meditative this is, yeah, state. yeah. Towards the middle of that of that um, piece, you actually she does dive in. She's like, and then mm. and then there is a moment where she actually dives in, and there's a sound effect of diving in, mm. and the sound designer created this beautiful world where all of a sudden we and we hang speakers around the audience. Mm-hmm. So so that that's the first moment where all of a sudden you really do feel like sonically surrounded in a different way, and he's mm. like really brought you sonically underwater, and. We've had people comment that like they almost throughout the next, you know, 13 songs or whatever it is, until the moment when you emerge from the water, they almost forget that they're air breathers. And that to me is like, yes, we did it. We did it. Good. <laughs> I, I have a question and I'm, I'm discovering maybe I'm like I'm a drummer. Like I kind of want to know the nuts and bolts of All things. Right. So it's this project is very well researched and you have experts coming from the world of science and theater and your musical expertise. So how do you drop all of that and then write a song, do what you said at the beginning, write something that you don't care what people think and that it comes from within? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) I really don't care what people think. Uh, uh, You know, I, that's just kind of, uh, I would say both Carl and I you. are very. Like, I believe you. 
Thank you. Yeah, nobody's shocked. <laughs> or strong and wrong is what we like to say. <laughs> that what? said, we both really don't want, like, we want, we both want to be responsible to our listeners, not mm-hmm. in the, like, the catering to what they want kind of thing, but in the holding their hand into a, into new territory, and, like, making sure that, like, our, it's like, the, the the question of accessibility is kind of interesting because I think mm-hmm. in a way it what we do is accessible. Um, do you think being genuine mm-hmm. is what makes it accessible though? Because it's yeah, co- it's being coming genuine from and being you. clear. Mm-hmm. Mm. Being clear, like it's like the, I I feel like we both value a kind of clarity um, with mm. with how we use music. But your mm. question was more like, okay, you've researched. There's a ton of science and and thought going into the foundation of this. How do you, how do you let write that a song? Go? Yeah, how do you just write a song? Like, take it in and, and let it go. Put the, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think Carla spoke to the fact that the, the narrative arc maybe came a little later with the diver and things like that. What I'm good at is starting and going and writing. And um, mm. a lot of these songs would grow from a synthesizer pad or a drum beat or Jay playing guitar or we would just kind of get some material going and often hand it off to Carla and see if what she was thinking about could be applied to that. So some trial and error. Uh, often that's how we work, actually. So here, here's if your listeners might want to do a, like a, a little exercise in following my weird brain. If you listen to the song The Beautiful Math of Coral... Before you listen to it, go and go and do a search for on a, a TED talk by a woman named Margaret Wertheim, and she's she's a interesting. She's a science writer. She and her sister. She is a I think a twin sister. I'm not quite sure if they're twins, but she have she and her sister, who is an artist, have an organization together called the Institute for Figuring (IFF), mm-hmm. and it's dedicated to all their projects have something to do with the cross section of beauty and science. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean beauty in like the surfacey way, but like beauty in the philosophical yeah. way. And they deal with a lot of really interesting things in a lot of in super interesting ways. They, for example, have a project called the Crocheted Coral Reef. Mm-hmm. And she has a, a TED Talk in which she describes how crochet, what crochet has to do with coral and how the crochet coral reef ha- came, to, came into being. And it's fascinating and really wonderful, and she's super compelling. So if you go and watch that TED Talk, which I did as I was researching because I knew I wanted to put something in the piece about coral. It's such a huge issue. It's mm. such a – and what I ended up finding because of her TED Talk was different than what I set out, what I thought I was looking for. What I ended up finding, first of all, through other searches was this incredible footage of and uh, information about how coral spawns, which is fascinating. They Coral spawns once a year on the full moon in the fall. And people <laughs> okay. who – right? Wow. And on that – Full moon, the male and female parts of the coral open up and release their sperm and egg into the water, and it and it's and people like really who really want to document this because it's really extraordinarily beautiful, but it's very easy to miss because you never know when it's going to happen. <laughs> so I watched this incredible footage of that and got really taken by that idea, and how we don't think of of coral as being. And of course, we know coral is living, but to to think about its reproductive cycles on such a specific level totally. brought yeah. me into an understanding of uh, really seeing it as a, in its own depth and dimension as a as a being, right? Yeah. And the um, beauty of that, yeah. yeah. And as a mother, I kind of related yeah. to that. So what I do as a, as a lyricist to take all this 
science or evidence mm-hmm. or like, you know, things I'm researching is I f- try to find the way that I connect to it. Mm. Right. And so there there's that element of, of what uh, that ended up in the song. And the other is Margaret Wertheim's talk where she's talking about Euclidean geometry and how it totally fails to model coral. And that and she does a great job of explaining totally debunking Euclid and Euclidean geometry and saying like this is like the the way that coral and thing anything that's curved but when you open it up is a straight line you like Euclidean geometry can't handle it so for me as a lyricist I don't need to convey all that in my song I don't need to explain to you why anything about Euclidean geometry but um, I'm looking for bits of poetry that are really evocative, and so I ended up using the the term like the this beautiful math of coral, because she kind of goes into the the math a bit a bit. This beautiful math of coral brings Euclid to his knees, mm-hmm. and that like that's a kind of thing I'll take a whole TED talk and bring it down to that lyric. And what I love about that lyric is that it's also kind of a little bit raunchy, <laughs> and so it has like dimension. <laughs> yeah. Because it does have to do with the reproductive cycle. So there, like for me as a lyricist, I'm looking for those little moments of poetry that have dimension in them that might, that may or may not like be conveying actual information, but are like super viscerally evocative. Now, will we be able to attach a link where people can go to the Black Inscription website and yeah, hear some of it at least? Absolutely. The well, Black a- Inscription website is actually very easy to remember. It's just blackinscription.com. And on that website, you will, f- if you go to, I think it's the link that says listen, it'll take you to our Bandcamp okay. page. And then the whole album is on Bandcamp. Also, oh, it streams okay. on Spotify and Apple Music and nice. all those things. So you can find it okay. through normal phone channels and okay. things like and that. Okay. And we'll too. share the yeah. Rabbit Rabbit yeah. as well. Yeah. Right. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we've just started our our song a month thing. We're just start, we're just starting it again. So those who want to get in on the subscriber action mm-hmm. for to witness volume five come to life over the course of the next year. You two are some of the most fascinating people oh, that thanks, I have ever spent. I don't know what a good hour with today. Yes. A very good hour. A very good hour. So thank you. This has been thanks to you both. Just fascinating. Thank you we so we much. need we keep saying this. We need a part two. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to today's guest, Carla Kilstead and Matthias Bossi, for this episode of the Creative Exchange Podcast. I'm Amy Davies, the Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television. And I'm Julie Wake, Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. Until next time, Carla. Arts matter. Support for the Creative Exchange Podcast is made possible by Delbrook JKS. Music for the Creative Exchange podcast is the work of Jordan Renzi. Produced in association with Billingsgate Records by Jordan Renzi and Andrew Staker at Big Red Studios in Wellfleet. The Creative Exchange podcast is brought to you by the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod, Provincetown Community Television, and the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in South Yarmouth. In the desert, to the oasis, this Time, I'm not afraid.
Jesus.